uh, I yelled at Erica Bear, and we gone, and we're running around. We're trying to find our our polar bear scares, which are just these little uh, pencil flare rockets we send up to scare the bears away. And the bear uh, kind of stopped and looked at us, got up on its hind legs as if to say, "Oh, they see me." This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode number 34, Lonnie Dupree, Arctic Expeditions. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. We have a really amazing show for you today. Our guest is Lonnie Dupree. Lonnie Dupree has been staging Arctic expeditions for the last 25 years. Bear with me here. I'm going to give you a summary of some of his expeditions. In 1985, Lonnie Dupree and his friend John Peterson were dropped off by airplane 50 miles from nowhere, and they lived off the land all winter long in Alaska. This started Lonnie on his Arctic expeditions. In 89, uh, Lonnie Dupree with Paul Shirky led a team of Russians and Americans that skied a thousand miles along the Siberian and Alaskan coast to promote peace between the United States and the USSR. In 91 and 92, Lonnie Dupree and Malcolm Vance traveled 3,000 miles by dog sled from Prudhoe Bay, Alaska to Churchill, Manitoba along the Arctic Ocean. And this was the first west-to-east crossing of Canada's famed Northwest Passage in wintertime. In 94, as a part of the Winter Olympics, Lonnie Dupree, with an international team, dog-sledded the 1,000-mile leg from Lillehammer, Norway, to Hermansk, Russia, and they carried an environmental message for the closing ceremonies at Lillehammer. In 1997 through 2001, Lonnie Dupree and Job Holscher of Australia were the first to successfully circumnavigate the island of Greenland. They did so with sea kayaks and dog sleds. So that was 3,442 miles by dog sled, 3,075 miles by kayak. 2006, the One World Expedition. Lonnie Dupree and Eric Larson pulled and paddled their modified canoes over 600 miles of shifting sea ice from Canada to the North Pole. So this was the first time that anyone got to the North Pole over sea ice in the summer. In 2009, there is another North Pole expedition. Lonnie Dupree and Stuart Smith and Max Chaya spent two months going 650 miles to the North Pole, and they endured temperatures of, ready, negative 56 degrees Fahrenheit. 2010, the Arrowhead Expedition. Lonnie Dupree with a team of three others climbed Denali, and they summited in just 13 days. And then, most recently, 2015, this year, Lonnie became the first man to summit Denali solo in January. The winds regularly exceeded 100 miles per hour. He endured temperatures well below negative 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Lonnie Dupree must be half snowman. I don't know. This is crazy. Well, hey, Lonnie, welcome to the program. 
Thanks, Kurt. Yeah, looking forward to uh, looking forward to our visit. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks so much for uh, for getting in touch with us. Hey, Lonnie, I gave our guest a bit of an extended introduction just because I find your polar expedition portfolio to be so amazing. But take a couple of minutes and tell us more about yourself and how you got started doing these. Yeah, I mean, I've been running around the Arctic and polar regions for the last 25 years. And uh, it started out mostly by traveling to Inuit communities along the, uh, you know, above the Arctic Circle. And then uh, and then slowly uh, moving on to uh, uh, my rounding of Greenland, uh, two North Pole expeditions, uh, crossing a Canada's famed Northwest Passage. And then all um, oh, doing some stuff in Siberia as well. Uh, to bring a, uh, promote peace between the two superpowers at the time, uh, Russia and the United States. And um, I just have a love for uh, cold climates and the outdoors, and we use our expeditions um, as a captivating tool uh, to bring it uh, to, um, uh, to, the, uh, to the public uh, so we can talk about uh, greater issues such as climate change or cultures or things like that. So um, we've been doing that now for, like I said, maybe probably over 25 years now. Wow, 25 years. And I see on your website here that you have a book that details all these expeditions for the last 25 years. Yeah, there's uh, seven or eight uh, expeditions uh, um, uh, written about in that book. Um, um, And you all find them there. It took me 10 years to write the book. Uh, because we were doing projects in between all that time. So uh, it's basically a culmination of my journals. And then just uh, people get a good feeling of what it's like to uh, be an explorer, not just being in the field, but how to launch, like the the amount of work it takes to launch expeditions as well. And so I think folks will find that a fairly fascinating read. So the name of the book is Life on Ice, 25 Years of Arctic Exploration. And uh, what's the best way that listeners can uh, find that book? Well, uh, the best way would be, would be to go on our website, uh, oneworldendeavors.com, and they can purchase the book uh, there. And if uh, uh, people do that uh, within the next uh, uh, couple of weeks, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll handle the shipping. Very cool. Well, we'll revisit the book here a little bit later in the podcast, but first, let's talk about some of these expeditions. You know, polar expeditions, polar exploring is probably not for everyone, but I know that it's been a passion for you. Um, Why would you encourage people to consider an endeavor like that? Well, everybody has their own, uh, uh, I mean, it's relative to everybody. Everybody has their own little expeditions that they're on, whether it's uh, canoeing in the boundary waters of northern Minnesota or uh, walking through uh, uh, a desert, but uh, I don't know. Polar exploration is a little different. I mean, it's pretty. Uh, you have to would have to really love uh, winter camping, and um, there's techniques, uh, years of experience and techniques surrounding that that make uh, allow for being comfortable out there. So it's it's not everybody's cup of tea, but if you put your time and effort into it um, and learn all the tricks of the trade to stay warm and comfortable, it can be quite enjoyable. You know, I have uh, done quite a few winter um, ascents of mountains and and winter camps and snow caves and things, but, you know, with me, I'm usually around zero degrees Fahrenheit, maybe slightly above or below on these trips, but you're doing things in much, much colder temperatures. What kind of temperatures do you encounter out there? Well, when you're leaving on North Pole 
trip in the spring, it's uh, minus 50 to minus 60 degrees below zero. It can be even colder than that. And, of course, that's really, uh, you can get frostbite in just uh, minutes, uh, really severe frostbite if you're not uh, careful and know what you're, know what you're doing. So um, top of uh, Denali, for instance, in uh, winter can exceed uh, minus 60 below zero. So it's those are pretty cold, pretty cold temperatures to have to live in. And um, you just have to be really prepared, know your body extremely well, know how to use the clothing and equipment, and uh, know how to how, how and what to eat for food wow. keep you from getting frostbite. Yeah. Um, I would expect that you have to ingest a lot of calories just to stay warm up there. Well, yeah, and it depends on if you're mountaineering, mountain climbing, or uh, on the ocean pulling a sled to the North Pole. You burn calories different up there. On the ocean, you burn calories from fat. On a mountain, you burn calories from protein. So you have to adjust your diet accordingly. Interesting. So if you will, take a minute to tell us about an amazing experience that kind of introduced you to and got you hooked on the idea of these polar explorations. Yeah, well, when I was in my early 20s, um, in uh, the mid-80s, we did, uh, a friend of mine and uh, and I uh, did a... uh, um, a long winter in uh, the Brooks Range of Alaska, where we just hired a pilot to drop us off in the middle of nowhere in northern Alaska, and we would eke out a living there through the winter and be picked up in the spring. And uh, so we just got dropped off on a remote lake uh, just uh, uh, just south of the Brooks Range, and then uh, over the course of uh, a few weeks, built a, a really tiny log cabin right out of the right out of the bush and then uh, continued to live and uh, live there throughout the winter uh, uh, snowshoeing and, and, and different things and then getting um, and then getting out of there in the in the spring that was a that was a that was one of my first things I learned a lot about clothing and food at uh, during that trip and uh, just uh, being in tune with your body and what it's on you you're doing and things like that you know, that one experience, and you've done many, but that one experience, we could fill up four podcasts with that. I have a thousand questions already, <laughs> but we're going to run out of time. So what was it yeah. like in the wintertime in the Brooks Range up there? Um, dark, cold, miserable, or pleasant, but cold? I mean, what, how would yeah, you describe well, that, it? Uh, that was really cold temperatures, too. We had uh, minus uh, 56 degrees below zero uh, one, one of the, a couple of the days there. And when you're right at the edge of the Arctic Circle at that time of year, December 21st, the sun uh, goes down for about an hour and then it comes back up. So, I mean, you have really long, you know, the e- the days are getting really, really short. Nights are very long because you're up in the Arctic. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a lot of cool experiences that uh, we, we, we came about when we uh, were on that trip about uh, low-lying, the low-lying sun. The low-lying sun and uh, just uh, the the wildlife, the animals, the rabbits, the uh, um, the uh, the the wildlife like lynx and uh, wolverines and uh, otters and things like that. We it was a quite a learning experience. Sounds fascinating. Um, tell us a, a brief summary of your 22-month circumnavigation of Greenland. Uh, it was, uh, it was actually five and a half, the circumnavigation of Greenland was actually five and a half years in the making, uh, which took us 22 months to circumnavigate in three separate legs. 
And uh, it was about 3,000-plus miles of kayaking around the south, 3,000-plus miles of dog sledding around the north. It was just two of us, myself and John Holger from Australia. And it was a long, long ordeal because uh, Greenland's never been circumnavigated before because it's uh, locked in sea ice uh, uh, pretty much year-round, um, that entire island, because the sea ice that comes down from the Arctic Ocean plugs the east coast and all the way up the west coast and so and therefore uh it's uh, just impossible to get around uh but we developed techniques in order to do that and uh, our expertise in dog sledding and then being amphibious while we're kayaking uh you know pulling the kayak across ice and and then paddling in the open water allowed us to do that so um yeah it was five and a half years into making 22 months on trail Wow. So and, uh, describe this amphibious kayak a little bit. The skis that it rides on on the ice, um, do, they, do they come well, off it, when you hit the water? Uh, you pull those off so that the no, kayak performs no, better no. or they stay on? No, no, no. We're pulling plastic boats, so they slide automatically. Um, and uh, during our kayaking around Greenland, we didn't have skis. We just pull, pull, the, pull the kayak across the the ice and we got to open water, we just jump in again and go. On the North Pole, which was a different uh, situation, you're doing, uh, you know, the, it's a 600-mile journey one way, and so uh, we're pulling skis across huge pans of huge uh, areas of open out ice where uh, of that 600 miles, only, uh, you know, 10% is water, open water. 10% of 600 miles is still 60 miles of paddling. That's not trivial. Right, especially when it's, you know, real cold and that kind of thing. So you don't want to fall in the water, of course. Well, what what about icing on the boat as you paddle? Is that a concern? No, no. It's plastic boat. It's just that uh, bangs off, falls off. So icing's not an issue at all. So tell me what it feels like to be hundreds of miles from your starting point. Conditions like this, 50, 60 below zero. Um, it's well, you and nature. You know, what yeah. what does that feel like? Well, well, uh, the starting point, uh, the starting point for a North Pole trip on the northern edge of Ellesmere Island isn't safety at all. It's just the starting point. It takes it takes a huge expedition just to get to the starting point of a North Pole trip. Uh, you're 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 hundreds and hundreds of miles away from any human beings from that point. Then you start your trip. And now you're going across an area of the Arctic Ocean that's one and a half times bigger than the United States, and it plunges to a depth of fourteen thousand feet deep. So it's uh, it's you 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 are out there. You are on your own. You're anything goes wrong, you know you uh, it's it's up to you to fix it. And if you got metal medical conditions, uh, you know it's you, there's no guarantees you're going to get out. Wow. Um, could you give us a, a description of a typical day? Let's say on this. North Pole expedition. Um, how was your time spent? How many hours doing what? And, and what kind of experiences would you have? Well, a we, uh, summary of our day would be uh, we get up, uh, you know, uh, six six o'clock in the morning. We have two hours of prepping in the tent to get ready for the day. Fill up with thermoses, things like that, and then uh, and then we uh, just uh, and then we um, uh, travel for uh, eight to ten hours on skis. Then we uh, takes another two to three hours to set up camp and to get get rested, get in the sling bags, um, get uh, hydrated, and then uh, and then uh, get ready for the next day. So I mean it's it's a lot of work. It's uh, two three hours of setting up camp, two three hours of breaking camp, 
and then you got and then whatever time you can get in between there to eat and sleep and then uh, you're traveling again so we so we have a very rigid schedule that starts out a little bit slow maybe five to six hours for the first few days and then adding a half an hour each day until we're up to nine ten twelve hours a day of traveling The Boulder Outdoor Center wants to help you get outdoors and have some fun. With their adventures, lessons, guided trips, and gear, they make it super simple for you and your family to experience dozens of adventure sports. Located in Boulder, Colorado, the Boulder Outdoor Center offers adventures from ATV tours to hot air balloon or glider rides over the Rockies. Try your hand at stand-up paddleboarding, whitewater rafting, horseback riding, and much, much more. Visit the Boulder Outdoor Center on the web at www.boc123.com or give them a call at 303-444-8420. Hey all you mountain biking enthusiasts out there, come be a part of the 2015 CycleFest Colorado on May 16th. The CycleFest is a day of festivities supporting the Colorado High School Cycling League. All of the proceeds go to support cross-country mountain biking in Colorado and Wyoming. Special guest Sonia Looney will be there leading an afternoon ride for students and also speaking as a special guest at dinner that night. The dinner is at the American Mountaineering Center in Golden, Colorado, once again, May 16th. You can buy tickets at www.coloradomtb.org. That is Colorado, M as in mountain, T as in trail, B as in bike.org. Come be a part of the fun. What about adverse weather? Did you run into a lot of that? Uh, no, on the North Pole, not so much. I mean, you get foggy days where it's almost impossible to travel, so we'll take a rest day on days like that. The adverse weather uh, really plays a part on other projects uh, like Greenland or like uh, like uh, climbing a mountain. Um, on Greenland, we had, uh, during our kayak, we had days that were so fogged over you couldn't paddle, you couldn't see where to go, so... You had to stay put, or the winds were just too high, or um, uh, the dog sledding portions, of the, you had uh, whiteout conditions where you couldn't see. Of course, you'd have to stay put. On Denali, of course, uh, the winds can get so strong they can pull you off your feet, which would, uh, traveling solo, of course, you would uh, fall, and that's not a good thing. No. <laughs> and, and then, uh, and then um, um, the cold doesn't affect us. Uh, you know, precipitation would if it's blowing horizontal where you can't see. But otherwise, we try to travel whenever we can, providing we think we're getting, we can get some miles in. So on your uh, polar expedition, um, did you use a GPS or was it a compass-based navigation? H- how did you do that? We used, uh, on, our, on our way to the North Pole, which is, of course, across shifting sea ice, so the, the, the ice you're actually traveling across is moving. So you got to add that into effect uh, when you're into account when you're trying to navigate. But we use compass. We use uh, the sun, uh, our watches, the time on our watches based on the longitude line we're traveling up. And then uh, we do have a GPS that we uh, use not for navigating during the day, but just pinpoint our campsite at the end of the day and then in the in the morning because... Overnight, while you're sleeping, your 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 camp is actually drifting across the ice. So you want to know where you are, where you end up in the morning, so you can uh, navigate properly the next day. So every morning you have to you have to choose a new azimuth that points north. 
<laughs> that gets yep, you where you want exactly. to be. Wild. Exactly. So trying to get to the North Pole over shift over a shifting mass is not easy. Um, tell us, if you will, a story about a time that things didn't go right and how you managed. We're glad that you made it back to tell the story, but we would really like to hear what kind of um, obstacles come your way on this. Well, Denali, uh, you know, Denali had four separate winter attempts to get to the summit. Uh, the first three, of course, uh, uh, I had to turn around due to weather and then the third time, just this last January, I finally made it. But the, um, the, um, uh, well, one case was that I, you know, the, the descent of those mountains is always the most dangerous because that's when most fatalities happen. And it wasn't in, it wasn't any different with my case. I slipped on the way down, uh, because I had a gust of wind that hit me in the back, a uh, really strong wind that threw me off balance. And of course, not being roped in, uh, fell fell off my crank ponds and started sliding down the sliding down the mountain but I managed to self arrest with my ice axe which uh which uh saved me I sh- certainly would have perished had I not been able to stop but it was um I mean that was just one of them um I was stuck at 17,000 feet uh, for 7 days in a snow cave waiting waiting for I was just trying to wait for a good weather window to make a summit bid but it never came so I had to go back down um, you know, so the, the mountain and, and, uh, slipping in uh, slipping into crevices, you know, I mean, uh, Denali every year, Denali, while I was up there was trying to, uh, snuff me out <laughs> and it was just, uh, really, uh, really, uh, a bit nerve wracking because you always had to be on your toes, completely focused, uh, you know, every, every minute of the day that you're on your feet. Wow. You know, I have heard that Denali can be a more difficult mountain than even Everest because the weather is so unpredictable there. And doing it in January to boot, I can't imagine. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole nother, uh, it's a whole nother level of difficulty because you have only five to seven hours of usable light to be able to travel because you're up in the Arctic and it's the winter time, right? So you don't have right. the sun that you would. Uh, uh, in like climbing Denali in the summer, you have t- basically 24 hours of light you can work with. So it's not a not a big issue uh, in the summer in terms of uh, light. But um, um, and yeah, Denali has uh, more vertical feet of climbing from respective base base camps than uh, Everest. So it's it's a big it's a big uh, it's a big mountain. Wow. Well, let's shift gears just a little bit. You've given us just a tiny sample of some of the expeditions you've done, which are all very amazing. But if someone were interested in learning how to do some of this stuff, how could they get started? The best thing to do would be uh, start with uh, maybe um, taking some outward bound classes or Knowles outdoor leadership classes uh, in winter traveling and camping and survival skills like that and uh i think that's the best that would be the best the best way to get started and to have a yeah, sample to get, of it to get, to get started yep and uh because i don't know who else offers that uh that intense but uh i know you in ely minnesota we have an outward bound school there that teaches winter camping skills travel navigation uh camping um that's that's probably where I would go, actually. So let's shift gears a little bit to dog sledding. You did quite a bit of dog sledding. Um, what size of a team do you use, and what are the ins and the outs of that? Well, dog sledding, we use I we use I use different dogs than people are familiar with in the lower forty-eight. I use uh, Inuit dogs, which are 
uh, kind of the Sherman tanks of the mushing world. They're they're really kind of draft animals that the Inuit people have used for over 5,000 years. There's very few of those purebred dogs left. Most of them can be found in a few isolated pockets of the Canadian Arctic and then um, in uh, parts of uh, Greenland you can find these dogs. And these uh, these I run a team of 12. I, I don't run it in the traditional tandem hitch like most people are familiar with when they think of the Iditarod. These dogs run in a fan hitch where all the, all the dogs are on 18-foot tug line each, and then uh, they're pulling a much different sled, too, a sled which is called a comatic. It's a more of a uh, two beams uh, uh, lashed together uh, three feet apart by uh, cross members, wooden cross members. Very flexible sled. They can carry heavy loads over very rough terrain. So if you have 12 dogs in a fan, how do you uh, direct them? There's not a lead dog then, is there, or how does that work? Yeah, there's there's two lead dogs that are out uh, a half a, a dog a dog length further out uh, on 20-foot lines. And they uh, they uh, go right and left and stop and do all that stuff on command, and the rest of the dogs are, are follow. But you herd those dogs with a um, uh, uh, what's called an iparalatuk. It's a it's a seal skin whip. It, it's not meant to to uh, uh, touch the dogs. It's just to uh, create sounds and cracking sounds to steer the whole works or herd the whole works right and left. You know, so let's say you're uh, dog swimming through a very uh, dangerous crevice field. You want to be able to control where that team is traveling so they don't slip into a crack, a crevice, or into the water, or any kind of it, it, it steers them away from dangerous areas. How wide is this fan of dogs? Yeah, it's about. I suppose it's uh, 16 feet wide. 16 feet. So. In a way, it may be safer than the traditional tandem hitch because a dog could slip into a, a, a hole of some sort. He's not pulling the other dogs. They're not tied to them. Everyone's tied back to the sled. So did, is that part of the reason for that approach? Well, that approach is uh, because each dog can grab its own footing. It's not forced to put it uh, have the footing that the dog in front of it chose. So uh, if you plus, if you get all the dogs on one side of a crack, they can push... They can pull that sled across that crack without it going through, whereas if you have dogs in tandem, you have some on some hanging over the abyss, you know, which uh, that can't provide any effort, and others that are trying. It's just uh, more difficult. The reason, and then one of the main reasons for uh, they run tandem, like in a ditter rod, you 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 can't run can't you can't run fan hits because dogs get wrapped around trees and things like that. But up in the Arctic, where you're above the tree line. The dogs, uh, uh, there's not much less for the dog lines to get hooked around, uh, you know, an obstacle. You know, I am not experienced as a dog sledder at all, but I have been pulled by dogs once, and I tell you what, they loved it. They were having the time of their lives. It seemed to me that the dogs were, were born to do that. Has that been your experience with these guys? Well, these dogs have been doing it for 5,000 years, so uh, uh, they're, they're just instinctual. You know, it's like having draft horses back in the old days, you know, that the, the, the dogs... The nice thing about our dogs is they're they're cared for because, uh, extremely well because they're a team member, just like any human being on the expedition. Uh, their lives depend on us, and our lives depend on them when we're in remote areas. So um, we work as one big uh, team. Um, and it's kind of even even funny. We all get fed about the same amount of food. Uh, a dog gets uh, about a kilo of food a day, and so do we. 
and uh, it's uh, it's just a good uh, good camaraderie, good companionship, and um, I mean it's not without hardship because people people and dogs die out there every day, and so it's it's a it's a life of uh, survival and adventure, and um, and uh, but um, um, I think it's yeah, it, for us it's it's just a way of life. So you spent quite a bit of time with the Inuit people. Have you learned a lot from them about how to get by in these harsh conditions? Uh, not so much on uh, getting by in the harsh conditions, um, a little bit, but uh, but mostly about uh, just about traveling techniques, um, about uh, living in the now, about being able to improvise when you only have a few things to rely on. Um, and um, and yeah, in some instances, survival too. Basic basic food and clothing usages. Uh, some synthetic clothing works well, but some traditional fur clothing works better. So it's um, it's uh, just depends on what we're going to be doing when we're whether we're dog sledding or climbing or or uh, skiing to the North Pole, for instance. You know, you mentioned living in the now and in adventure sports. I think that's one of the most attractive things is that people find focus and they find it's something about the circumstances of being in an adventure. You have to be focused on what you're doing right then and right now. And it's hard to do that in our distracted world. But what is that like? I mean, when you do one of these solo expeditions and you're out there for for months, right? Describe your living in the now. You're away from the uh, everything that's stimulating us from the outside when we're living in a city or in a town where you got uh, cars and beeping horns and, you know, paying bills and doing the day-to-day chores of, uh, of life. But when you're out in the traveling in the um, extreme wilderness or on a mountain or something, you can let all that go and just focus on um, being one with, try to be in, being in tune with the environment in which you're in. And the longer you spend out there, the more in tune you become. I mean, you start understanding uh, the weather. You start understanding the wildlife, the animals around you. You understand. You start understanding how things work, and that is uh, very rewarding because uh, as we get at the way society is heading these days, we're getting further and further removed from the outdoors and 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 from our roots, which is. Uh, which is a, kind of a shame. And so um, anytime I can uh, uh, help people get back to the land or get back to the outdoors, I think it's not only good for them, but it's also good for the uh, outdoors because when people have um, a bit of that in their heart of being in the wilderness, they tend to want to protect it and save it. And uh, and so that's that's really uh, what we hope to accomplish as well. You know, that seems to be a common theme with many people that we interview. It's just, you know, if people would get closer to nature, then they would understand what a what a priceless treasure it is. And uh, I agree 100%. You know, people that don't yeah. know nature are really missing out on, on such a, a huge blessing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's, it's really our... Uh, our obligation and how we can pay things back for what it's given to us is just trying to um, do something good for the environment um, or at least bring attention to some issues and things like that because it's it's uh, it's given given us so much so um, yeah it's it's uh, it's it's uh, uh, we feel fortunate to be able to do that and 
with ever-growing population in this world and with uh, climate change, of course, it's it's affecting that directly, and it's really... Uh, um, I struggled to try to get my head around uh, what we can do to try to uh, preserve a green space on this planet so it will be self-generating. And um, but it's it's becoming tough every every year, and I'm just trying to figure out what what we can do as a society to to get things turned around. You know, I think a lot of people are waking up. You know, we can't abuse the earth and expect it to sustain us. They're finding ways to. Um, work in harmony with the earth so that it does provide our needs and it can continue to do so for generations and generations and generations indefinitely right to come but that's a new approach to things things like permaculture instead of traditional agriculture um being responsible with our industries you know being responsible with the resources that we harvest from the planet people are beginning to understand that uh it has to be done in the right way. It has to be balanced. Exactly, exactly. And uh, um, the, I think our the biggest challenge that we face today um, is not trying to do more research, more science, you know, about polar bears or about shrinking sea ice or about all this stuff that we know it's actually happening. We know that science is, has told us repeatedly since the early 60s that Climate change is going to be a problem, and now it's right at our back door. And so we need uh, we need to make really big steps to do that because if we don't plan climate change, then everything else we're doing is just for nothing. Because in the end, um, we got to try to we got to try to save our environment, um, um, our our climate, because trying to save a specific thing, which is which is granted. Uh, some research and things need to be done. You know, I've tried to, I helped try to put the polar bear on the endangered species list, but we can do that. We can put the polar bear on the endangered species uh, list, but if we don't curb climate change, that polar bear is gonna not is gonna is gonna go extinct, regardless of what uh, what classifications we put that bear at, right? So, if we don't curb climate change, we're gonna have mass extinctions of animals and plants and animals that. Uh, we're not going to get back, and polar bear is one of them. Um, and so uh, that's that's kind of how I feel right now. Is all the research, all the planning, all the goodwill stuff that we're doing now is going to be almost in vain uh, unless we do something, you know, unless we tackle that cause. Like in Minnesota, we're losing all our moose because it's too warm for them. Mm. We got new species of animals up here uh, in northern Minnesota that we've never had before: raccoons, skunks. Uh, we got a possums possums just south of Duluth, uh, Minnesota, which is just unheard of. Um, we have uh, ticks, uh, different uh, types of wood and deer ticks now up here. We never had before. So all these things are all these things are uh, coming to be because uh, the planet's getting warmer. That's that's just my take on the whole thing. We got to solve climate change first, then we'll start putting resources in other areas. You know, Lonnie, it sounds like you've always been kind of the bigger picture minded. You mentioned uh, trying to get the two superpowers, the United States and the USSR, to resolve some of their differences. What what was that about? Yeah, in 1989, we did an expedition called Bering Bridge Expedition, um, and it was led by Paul Shirky of uh, Minnesota and uh, Dmitry Shapiro of uh, Moscow. And uh, it was when Gorbachev was in office, and he allowed Americans to travel over to uh, very east part of Siberia uh, on a goodwill expedition to promote peace between 
the then Soviet Union and the United States, and by doing a joint dog sled expedition with um, six Soviets, six Americans on the team, we crossed over the international dateline between the in the middle of the Bering Sea from Siberia over to Alaska. Finished the expedition in Nome, and uh, it was just uh, it was a really good way to open up uh, relationships between the two countries. Tell us a funny story, if you would, a story about when <laughs> when things just got really hilarious. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll tell you this one polar bear story. Eric Larson and I were going to the normal, and uh, we stopped to set up camp, and we're sitting there uh, running the tent poles through the tent, and then all of a sudden I look up, and here's a polar bear uh, that is sneaking up uh, behind Eric, and he has his neck on the ground, and he's just sliding with his back feet like a snake. <laughs> and he's not that far from Eric, and he told Eric, I yelled at Eric, a bear, and we've gone, and we're running around, we're trying to find our, our polar bear scares, which are just these little uh, pencil flare rockets we send up to scare the bears away. And the bear uh, kind of stopped and looked at us, got up on its hind legs as if to say, oh, they see me. And he starts walking into us. And then he said, and then it was like he thought, well, maybe they don't see me. And he got back down in the crouch position and started coming in. And then he went on a few more feet and they said, nope, they see me. And then he just keeps in towards us. <laughs> we actually managed to scare him away just before he got to us. Oh, <laughs> that sounded like a bear with some bad intentions. Yeah, it was. Okay, well, Lonnie, thank you very much for being on the show today. Kurt, I really enjoyed our conversation, but I really appreciate our time together. It was really a pleasure. Hey friends, before I say goodbye today, I have a couple of special announcements. First is about our new Adventure Sports Podcast Hotline. You can call in and leave a recording there of your adventure stories, and we are going to piece together these stories and play them on special weekend edition podcasts. Now, you only have 10 minutes, so your story has to be less than 10 minutes long, and feel free to get your buddies together. You know, do a re group recording, have lots of fun with it. We look forward to hearing your stories. You can find information about the hotline by going to our website, adventuresportspodcast.com, and looking in the left-hand margin. Also, while you're there, there's a subscribe button on the right-hand side and an email us button as well, and this will allow you to be in contact with us. We really appreciate hearing from you, what you like about the show, what maybe you don't like about the show. This is about you. We want to make sure that we are providing you with the guests and the podcasts and the content that you want to hear, so you do have a voice in this show. Please email us. Let us know how we're doing. And don't worry, we will not abuse your email address. Um, we do send out updates about our show about once a week or so. We won't abuse the email address. We won't give it away, and you can always unsubscribe at any time. So please don't be shy. Let us know how we're doing. We really appreciate that. Now, until the next show, get out there and have some fun.